0: welcome to the Paterno Fellows Podcast, a podcast designed to help students navigate the requirements of the Paterno Fellows Program through exploring research, service, creative opportunities, and engaging in meaningful conversation about contemporary campus issues. This is a podcast created by and for the students of the Paterno Fellows Program. I'm your host, Laddin Solman. And today, we are joined by Jeremy Engels, who is a professor of communication arts and sciences, and is actually the director of the Paterno Fellows Program here at Penn State. His most recent book, The Ethics of Oneness, Emerson, Whitman, and the Bhagavad Gita, Engels attempts to counter the pervasive and problematic American ideals of hierarchy, exclusion, violence, and domination by reconsidering our ideas of unity. In this conversation, Jeremy and I discuss fate, free speech, and the paternal Fellows program, and much more. Without any further ado, my conversation with Professor Engels. All right. Uh, today, we are joined by Professor Jeremy Engels. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's been a busy couple of weeks, but it's nice to sit down and have a conversation with you today.
1: Yeah, it's really great to be here, too. Can you believe it's already November? It's crazy. Time flies. Time really does fly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So I, I just want to dive straight in. So you, you are a professor of communication arts and sciences here at Penn State. And for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, Professor Engels is actually the very director of the, of the Paterno Fellows program. Um, could you please, uh, let us in on the sequence of events that led to you becoming particularly interested in honors programs
1: in higher education? Sure. Um, so I was an honors student myself. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Kansas and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. I, um, in high school applied to the University of Chicago and, um, they have a really famous humanities program there. And I got in and I got a full scholarship and that's where I was planning on going. And, uh, Actually, the day that I got my admission slip, um, I came home from school and my dad was there you know, with my mom and had found out that day that he had been let go from his job that he'd worked for like 20 years. They were downsizing and moving the plant to a different city. And um, so we had a really challenging conversation about whether we could afford to go to a really expensive place like the University of Chicago and ultimately decided that it didn't make sense. And this is was a moment when people weren't taking on as much debt as they do now. And, um, so I ended up going to the university of Kansas. Um, I grew up in Wichita, Kansas and, uh, um, Kansas KU is a great school. Um, but honestly I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I went there, I felt like, you know, I belonged someplace else. And, um, it was being in the honors program that really rescued me, actually. Um, I remember we had a orientation the first week of, like, before classes. And uh, I was talking to some faculty about what I was interested in. And they said, you need to meet this professor, Greg Shepard. And so I did. And it changed my life. Um, he became my mentor as an undergrad. And... Uh, He was the person I told first when I knew that I wanted to get engaged to my, you know, my wife, Anna, and he went and actually picked out wedding rings with me and did a reading of my wedding and he continues to be my mentor. But it was the opportunity to take really good classes with really smart people and to work really closely with a faculty member who believed in me, you know, a faculty member who believed that, you know, my ideas that I wanted to change the world, that, you know, I could maybe make a difference, you know, he didn't see that as being naive at all. Um, And he really wanted to help me to realize my interests and my dreams. And so I went from, you know, being somebody who was pretty grumpy about being at a state school to just thanking Like whatever deity you believe in that I ended up there because it changed my life. And uh, and so I've loved honors programs since then. And, um, you know, I love the Paterno Fellows Program for so many reasons. Um, But the reason I love it the most is the opportunity to work with amazing students. Um, You know, I think of everything that I had as an undergrad, as an honors student. And I want Penn State students to have all of that and more.
0: Right. Well, that, that was a very extensive answer, and there's a lot of different ways that I can go from there. But sure. I think if there's a common thread um, throughout almost everything that you said, there's this idea of fate. I mean, whether or not you were able to see it at the time, you ended up being in the right place at the right time and meeting the right people, namely, I mean, your wife and and everything kind of planned, like, you know, fleshed out the way it was supposed to. I mean, so can you speak a little bit about your relationship with fate and maybe kind of how this whole experience has shaped that that whole experience from wanting to go to the University of Chicago and ending up at this state school in Kansas. Uh, how, how, did, how did that shape your ideas of fate?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I mean, I think, um, you know, we could have <laughs> a really deep, deep, you know, philosophical conversation about fate and what that means. And, um, but I think for me, um, You know, one of my favorite philosophers is um, William James. And uh, he actually was, you know, my mentor as an honor student introduced me to William James. And I took a grad class on William James with with Greg Shepard, Professor Shepard. And um, James talks about how, you know, every possibility has. I'm trying to think of exactly how to say this. Um, He talks about how most hypotheses are live hypotheses as long as we believe in them, is what he says. Um, And he talks about the importance of belief in realizing the worlds that we live in. And I think so much of fate often is looking around at the opportunities that are present in wherever you happen to be right now and recognizing those as opportunities, especially to connect with other people. And so, you know, had I, you know, been really, really grumpy and upset about where I was, you know, maybe I don't reach out and get this amazing mentor. Maybe I don't meet my wife. I mean, maybe I don't meet dear friends. Um, Maybe I don't read that book that changes my life. Um, And so, you know, was it like the universe conspiring to put me in that particular place at that time? I don't know that I believe that necessarily, but I believe that being in that place provided me with unique opportunities and to recognize those as opportunities um, was really central to, you know, me ending up where I'm at today. Yeah. Yeah. Right and and speaking of these
0: unique opportunities um I mean I could think of the unique opportunities that the Paternal Fellows program offers for instance do you feel as though most Paternal Fellows students are um sort of are, are in recognition of these um opportunities that the Paternal Fellows program offers or do you feel like a lot of it's sort of in the dark or do you feel like a lot of students are sort of you know taking advantage of all the things that they have at their disposal uh, um, uh vis-a-vis the Paternal Fellows program
1: Yeah. um, So I I see the Paterno Fellows Program as being this program that exists in order to both support and challenge students at Penn State. And, you know, I've talked to so many college students who, in retrospect, say, you know, I wish I would have done this, or I wish I would have taken advantage of this, or I didn't realize how amazing it was that I was there in this place with these people. And, you know, I think that the program is designed in order to help people realize those opportunities while they're here, right? And, um, you know, do people take advantage of it? Some students really do, actually. I mean, some students are really involved in the program. They read the newsletters, they participate in events. other students, less so, um, you know, and I think that there are a fair number of students who are so busy that they don't realize actually all of the amazing opportunities that are present here um, through the program. And so, you know, I think it's a it's a mixed bag, I think, actually. I mean, wh- what do you think? I, I do tend to agree with you that it is a mixed
0: bag. Um, I, I think that the Paterno Fellows Program does have a lot of opportunities and um, things to offer its students. However, I do believe that sometimes, like I was speaking to Professor Retzel about this one time, like in the emails, there'll be in the newsletter itself, there'll be something buried in the bottom of the newsletter. And so it will kind of be hard for students to engage with it in that regard. Um,
1: sure. But I
0: do believe that people who go out looking for the information end up finding it. It's just a question of for those people who are kind of in between the fence, uh, whether or not that information can get to them. Um, yeah. And I wanted to just go a little further with that um, with you. And as a director, um, what what would you sort of say are the strengths and weaknesses of this program in, in regard to how you intended it to flourish versus the state of it today, if you don't mind me asking?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, you know, b- before responding to that, um, something that you just said really really strongly resonated with me, and um, and I was thinking about how, you know, one of the things that my mentor told me about being at the University of Kansas, which is a great school, I mean, like, I don't want to rag on it at all, it really is, Um, but he told me, he said, look, you can get just as good an education here as you could at a place like the University of Chicago or Harvard, you just have to work a little harder at it. You just have to work a little harder to seek out the opportunities, to seek out the professors, to seek out the conversations that you want to participate in. And I feel that way about Penn State, too. I mean, I think you can get the best education in the world, in our college. Um, We have this amazing network of alumni and mentors. Um, But... So much of the quality of a person's education here depends on their own initiative, right? I mean, like how much they're willing to maybe go above and beyond and put a little bit of extra effort in. And um, in terms of like strengths and weaknesses of a program, um, I don't know. I mean, how do you encourage students to recognize that in order to get the most out of their time here? they're going to need to put in extra work um, because everyone is so busy, right? I mean, you know, with classes, with extramurals, with jobs, um, everyone already is almost completely saturated. Um, And so there are often these wonderful opportunities that we present to students, but people feel like they're too busy to partake in them. And so I feel like that's a challenge. I mean, I think that's a challenge with, uh, university life in general actually you know i don't think that that's just indicative of our program um yeah and so if any listeners out there have ideas for how we can do a better job at that i would love to hear them um and i think that to me speaks to how i imagine uh you know the greatest strength of this program i mean i would say actually i think two things are the greatest strengths of this program um You know, this program is truly democratic, which I appreciate, you know. um, Anyone can participate if they want to. There are, you know, if you choose a major in our college, um, any student who wants to be a Paterno Fellow is welcomed. Um, And then it's really just on whether you, um, you know, meet the requirements or not. Um, And so we're not barring anyone from participating. You know, I think that's probably the greatest strength of the program um, is that it really is a place where democracy thrives. But I think the other great strength is how open I am and how open Josh is and how open Barb is and how open the college is to students' viewpoints and opinions and perspectives Um The thing I love most really about this, you know, this job is the opportunity to work with great, brilliant students. And I love it when students bring ideas for projects or initiatives or things that they want to do to me. Um, And then the conversation becomes about, like, how can we make that happen? Um, Mm -hmm. That's my favorite conversation to have.
0: I'd say something that you said that really resonated with me was uh, when you spoke about, you know, the quality of the education is really dependent upon the student themselves and how much they want to learn, you know, and their, their kind of drive yeah. for learning. As a student and looking around the student body, I think I've observed something that's become more and more characteristic of students at university today. Um, I think a lot of students have a... I don't want to say just wrong, but there's something wrong about the way that they look at a university. I think that they look at it as sort of the barrier for entry into the job market rather mm. than an asset in and of itself. Um, there's sort of like this tendency to go away from education and towards, okay, what am I going to use in real life? You know, just this obsession with practical technicality, that kind of thing, which certainly is important and serves its purposes. Sure. Um but what would you say is the harm of that kind of mentality um, in, uh, for, for students in university?
1: Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And to me, I partly experience it in, um, you know, this move that we make in our culture. I mean, scholars have a number of names for it. Neoliberalism is one of them. But basically, measuring the value of everything in terms of the market, its market value. And so university becomes an investment that one makes, um, and students become customers as opposed to students. And, uh, you know, I like a lot of faculty have had parents contact me at the end of the semester. Um, and it's always weird when parents, you know, contact me about a student's grade as opposed to like students. Um, but I've had parents contact me and say, look, we paid a lot of money for this class. We bought an A. And I have to say, that's not how grades work. Um, You didn't buy anything. I mean, you know, the grade that you get is earned. It's not given like that. Um, But I think if we're always measuring uh, the value of something based on the outcome, based on some sort of like future possible benefit there's a real danger that we miss out on all of the opportunities in the present that we've been talking about. Right. Um, Because all of a sudden these things that are really intangible and that we can't put a market value on a dollar value on, maybe don't like if we're looking forward, they don't seem as important. Um, But like the value of college is really found in, you know, the 10 or 15 minute conversation you have with your professor in office hours or with like a group project. I know everybody hates group projects, (laughs) um, but the bonds that you form and what you learn from your classmates in those projects are skills for life that you can't measure, you know, in terms of like a market value. Um, So I think there's a real danger that we miss out on opportunities. We miss out on chances, chances really to grow, right? I mean, you know, I think it's important. We shouldn't deny that one of the important things about college is like helping you to learn skills that will get you a good job, right? I mean, that that's great. Like, I love that. Um, but we're also teaching you skills that should help you to develop as human beings, right? I mean, you know, how to make decisions, how to do research, how to argue, how to listen, how to be critical, in a productive way, it's really hard to put like a dollar value on those things. Um, but ultimately, like, I think that's the stuff that's so important about college. Um, what do you think? You know, I certainly agree as college is something that helps you grow as a person holistically
0: and not just, you know, in terms of the education. I mean, I'm someone who is like, to be honest with you, before and during college and critical of college due to the fact that, as I should be, I believe, because the prices of college have soared through the roof. Yes. And a lot of yes. information available through college is also available elsewhere on the internet, actually for a very low price or for free. But sure. I, but the, what I, what I think that's very important about college is sort of the environment, um, of a university, um, academia itself, the relationships you establish with your fellow students, with your professors, every, and everything in between. Um, and that transitions very nicely to the question I wanted to ask you as someone who's dedicated their life to academia what does that mean to you
1: yeah what does academia mean to me yeah yeah um you know that that's it's a question i think that you know academics wrestle with all the time because academia is undergoing these big changes right now that you you know you put your finger on right i mean the Decline in state support and the correlated rise in the cost of college, which bars entry to so many people, saddling students with massive, massive amounts of debt, um, you know, a contracting job market, um, the shift to contingent labor um, away from, you know, contracts that really protect people with things like insurance and whatnot. I mean, these are things I wrestle with all of the time. But I mean, to me, academia really is, you know, I was going to say it's a dream, um, but that's not quite the right language because it makes it sound like a fantasy and it's not. Um, You know, I think academia is where we train to become citizens. I think it's where we learn the essential skills of self-government and government and working with others in communities um, and if that doesn't happen in academia i'm not quite sure where it happens i mean it may be on the ground um, but this is like a four-year concentrated shot of learning these you know life skills um, and as somebody who you know the only thing i ever wanted to do was be an academic i mean like i love school i always have um i love reading i love talking with other people about ideas and you know if that's not happening in academia i'm not sure where it's happening it's not happening on twitter um <laughs> you know i mean like i end up reading my twitter feed when i want to feel really resentful and angry at, <laughs> you know at things um but if we don't have a space where we can come together and really engage deeply with ideas, um, you know, I think that harms our society. And so, you know, I think, you know, academia has that training for democratic citizenship aspect, but it also has this, you know, this sort of dream of true intellectual exchange, I think.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree. Um, And I wanted to ask you, I mean, this is maybe a little bit um, off topic, but uh i'd say it's on topic but today we actually have a quite controversial speaker coming to campus as i'm sure you're aware um and and you you were speaking about this sort of like the, the the dialogue and this importance of you know the university as like a you know like the starting point for becoming a citizen and sort of teaches you how to become a citizen and engage in meaningful dialogue with people who you may or may not disagree with um do you think that one, are you on board with having this speaker coming to campus? And two, what do you think about the attitudes of the general student body towards um, such a speaker with the protests and such? And I'm sorry yeah. to, to bring you into this controversy, but I just no. thought it was, it was interesting. To I ask.
1: think if uh, if we can't talk about the really important <laughs> events that are actually happening in the world, then we're not doing our job. And so, I, um, I uh, you know I think it's important to have intellectual exchange and of ideas. Um, but that's not what's happening with this event on campus tonight. I mean, the event on campus is set up to be a provocation, right? I mean, and should the university allow hateful provocations, um, You know, I I personally, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that the university has an obligation to give people a platform to participate in hate speech, um, which is what's going to happen tonight based on what this particular speaker has done in the past. Um, But the decision was made and. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that student activity fees are being used to pay for the speaker. I believe is what I read. Um, like eighteen thousand dollars, which is a lot of money, and for the um, security
0: detail in and of itself, I believe.
1: Yeah, and also charging, you know, admission um, for for like VIP seats is what what I've read, um, and all of that. Um, but you know, decisions get made at. The university, higher up level, um, that faculty may or may not have a say in. Right? I mean, we saw that with like the vaccine mandate. You know, faculty asking for that, students asking for that, and it not coming through. Um, that that happens, and so I think that you know, trying t- to figure out how best to respond to hate speech when it happens. Is actually an essential skill of democratic citizenship, and so I think that the ways that students are responding to this that I've seen, and again, like I, you know, I've been paying some attention, um, but I think that some of the information is circulating through networks that I'm not a part of, as like a faculty member. So I'm just recognizing that as being a reality of things. Um, but my understanding is that there is an alternative event that's happening um, at the same time, right, right. At, at, at the hub, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a brilliant way of responding to something like this, is to organize an alternative event that is a productive event. Um, because we know that hateful provo- provocateurs want attention and they want reaction is what they want. And so often the best way that we can deal with them is just to ignore them altogether. Um, And so I think that's happening. And I also understand that there's a counter protest, I believe, is that correct? Do you know? Okay. Um, And again, I think that that is a perfectly valid way to respond. Um, How can you counter protest in a way that doesn't play right into the kind of provocative tactics of a hateful speaker, um, you know. And I think that that's wonderful. Like I, I've been really encouraged, actually, about how you know the student body and the faculty um, have responded to this particular speaker. Um, what, what do you think? Um, well, in
0: regards to him coming to speak. Um, I, I have trouble identifying certain things as, cause I don't think we have a robust understanding of what hate speech necessarily is in sure. our society. Sure. Um, I, I'm a million in a lot of ways that I believe that people should be allowed to say insofar as they do not, um, you know, transgress the harm principle. Um, right. but even what that means is, is, is under contention. Um, but I do want to go back to something that you said, um, about how the sort of the higher ups, um, the bureaucracy, if you will, of the university, um, the, the the decision-making process isn't necessarily democratic. And you were talking earlier about how the Paternal Fellows Program, one of the things that you liked most about it was a sort of democratic form of, you know, discourse and engagement between faculty and students. Um, why do you feel as though this sort of uh, aspect is missing from the administrative body of the university?
1: I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that, um, I think that the minute that you structure a university like a corporation, which to me, it seems like is, is more, you know, how a lot of big universities are being run today. Um, you know, corporations really aren't democratic entities, and they don't actually have an obligation to be democratic, right? I mean, and um, and so I think that that's part of part of what has happened. Um, you know, there are other universities that do seem to value faculty input quite a bit, um, and um, you know, I I think a lot of faculty are kind of um, I don't know if mystified is exactly the right word. Um, maybe mystified, just often at how decisions are made because we don't we don't know. You know when decisions are made behind closed doors, all you really get to know is the um, you know the information that's put out in statements, right? And those of us who are trained as critical rhetorical scholars in reading statements, like we're pretty good at picking those statements apart, but we don't know the logic that's being made, you know, why the decisions are being made. And so, um, you know, a lot of times it feels like decisions, um, you know, I I don't know why, um, you know, decisions are made the ways that they are. Um, But one of the things that I really do like about Penn State, and especially about our college, the College of Liberal Arts, is that there are very robust traditions of democracy within our college and within our program um, and, you know, opportunities for students to participate and to um, share uh, their opinions and to speak up and, you know, faculty and administrators who will really listen to that. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that one of the great challenges about democracy is that we're always encouraged to look at like the national level, right? We look at big national elections and those are important, but often actually what's happening locally is just as important, if not more important. And I feel that way at Penn state too. It's like, you know, I, I realize as a faculty member, I have very little say over the decisions that are made in old Maine. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, but I can have some say over the decisions that are made in Sparks building, you know, and, um, and I, I think that's great. I mean, and so I'm happy to work within, um, you know, our program to have our program feel, you know, more, more democratic. So, yeah. Right. Right. And, and
0: so I guess, I guess one way to move forward from here is, how, how do you, how do you envision sort of the, the universities, um, in the future becoming more, you know, flattened out in terms of the power structure? How can we sort of teach our students and educate our students, um, to have a sort of, sort of mentality and a sort of way of thinking that's the same thing and being redundant, um, that would allow them to sort of, you know, reform these systems in the future, um, and instill certain values in them that would allow that to be possible?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know the answer to that question um, and, and I think my I don't know is is partly my answer because I think that that's a question that faculty and students are going to have to answer together and I think that we will have to you know I think one of the amazing things you know as a professor of communication as a scholar of deliberation and democracy You know, when you get a group of people, especially a diverse group of people together in a room and you give them a common project that they feel passionate about, you know, magic happens. Um, It can. And um, I'd like to see more opportunities for that kind of magic to happen. But it's not going to be administrators telling students how things have to be. And it's not going to be faculty even telling students how things have to be. It's going to have to be really democratic and collaborative because students, you know, are going to have to be invested in this reforming process of the university for it to work. And we're going to have to listen to your ideas because you all are the ones living it. Right. I mean, like you all you're on the ground like you know what needs to be fixed more than we do um or at least equally to what we do right because you know as faculty like we see a lot of things that need to be fixed that you all might not notice but you all see a lot of things too and so you know that's again kind of coming back to what's most exciting about the paterno fellows program to me are these opportunities for collaboration for dialogue for communication um I love that. And uh, yeah. I certainly agree. And I think that
0: that is a beautiful way to wrap this up. I, I really do hope that, and I do see that magic happening here at, at this podcast. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to participate in it. Um, and I welcome any of our listeners, um, if you are interested in participating in the Paternal Fellows podcast, to reply to one of the newsletters. And we'd love to have you. Uh, well, Professor Engels, thank you for speaking to me today. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Great questions, and uh, yeah, just echoing that. If you know folks are involved or interested in being more involved, you know, speak up and let us know. And uh, you know, this is this podcast is a really fun experiment, and uh, based on the conversation today, I'm really digging it. So thanks. Thank
0: you for tuning in to this week's Paterno Fellows podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Feel free to listen to our past and future recordings on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or our paternal Fellows website at la.psu.edu. That's all for this episode, and we'll see you on the next one.